0: Death by work Slowly, we began to settle into the routine of slave labor, working 12-hour shifts. The day shift was 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., and the night shift was 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Working 12 hours a day is not so bad. I have worked that number of hours often in my life. The problem was that we received far too little nourishment for such work. In the morning, we were given a black liquid, which they called coffee. Once a day, we got a bowl of thin soup without any meat or fat, just some root vegetables and a slice of bread, which kept getting thinner. Every other day, we received a very small portion of cheese or margarine or sausage. Over the next six months we lost our body fat, then our muscles. We became thinner and thinner. Every bone could be seen protruding through our thin skin. We became walking skeletons. Hunger is a very painful experience. Prolonged hunger causes the mind to abandon every thought other than food. When we marched to the workplace and saw an apple core on the ground or a cabbage leaf, ten men would jump to get it. For this, the guards would beat us with their rifle butts, hitting us on our backs and forcing us back in line. At night, I dreamt only of food. My repetitive dream was of my mother's layered Napoleon custard cake, which had always been my birthday cake. Prisoners would often talk about food, reminiscing about meals enjoyed at home before the war, describing in detail every dish until others would shout, Stop this talk! Every second week, we were supposed to have a free Sunday. But for the most part, this did not happen. On a free Sunday, there would be a demand for, say, 40 prisoners to come immediately to unload a train filled with cement. Trains arrived every few hours to the building site, and the 50-kilogram sacks of cement had to be unloaded into a huge shed. The guards would grab whoever was around and create a human chain. Two prisoners inside the freight wagon would have a bag up and drop it on the back of a third prisoner. With a cement on his back, the carrier had to negotiate a narrow plank from the wagon to the shed and then climb on piles of cement bags laid out in steps to the highest point two prisoners stood ready to take the bag off the back of the carrier, who then had to return to the wagon and repeat the run until all the cement was unloaded. After a few hours of this work, we were totally exhausted, barely able to walk back to the camp. While writing this memoir, I began to question myself as to whether the bags weighed fifty or twenty-five kilos, since in Canada cement bags are twenty-five kilos. I ascertained, through research, that in Germany during the war, the bags were indeed fifty. It felt like a ton when the fifty-kilogram bag of cement dropped on my thin 16-year-old frame. To add to the difficulties, the air in the shed was full of cement dust. After working there for half a day, one would cough up cement and sneeze cement for days. I felt sorry for the prisoners who had to work in that shed day after day. Cutting open the sacks and pouring the cement powder into a screw pump that pumped the dry cement to our pump stations. If you slowed down during the work, you were the recipient of a vicious kick or beating. One of the camp commandants specialized in kicking prisoners at the back of the leg, a few inches above the heel. When a prisoner collapsed from the pain, He was subjected to more kicking until he got up and joined the line. Everything in the concentration camp had to be done at a running gate. It was part of the intimidation system. When my shoes from the ghetto finally wore out and fell apart, I removed the gold coin hidden in the heel before abandoning them. Then I had to use the wooden clogs issued to us which caused wounds on my feet. My father found a man who would take the coin in exchange for a pair of better clogs, which had leather tops, and two loaves of bread. The bread was to be delivered in quarter portions over several days, but we only received three portions before the buyer disappeared. At least the new shoes, though they still wounded my feet allowed me to continue working. As winter approached, I worried about my father. He was working outside on the construction site, carrying 50-kilogram bags of cement. I asked the Meister to permit my father to work in our station. The Meister said that he could not work with us, but he could work in the hut next to our station where the corks, for cleaning the concrete pipes were being made. My father's new job was to soak empty cement bags in water, then fold and roll them to the correct diameter and tie them with wire, making a cork. It was a good place to work as there were no construction supervisors to target him and it was warm indoors. If he prepared a good stack of corks, there was no pressure. One thing, however, soon became clear. The water and cement began to attack the skin of my father's hands, making it raw and painful. I gave him grease from the workshop to protect his hands, and that helped a bit. Working in the pumping station saved both my life and my father's. If we had been assigned to work on the actual construction outdoors in winter, dressed in our flimsy clothes, we would surely have perished. Many prisoners died working on the dangerous construction site. They had to stand on a narrow, wet, and slippery board in the middle of a forest of steel rods sprouting all around and control the heavy vertical pipe hanging from a crane, which was feeding the mixed concrete into the space below. The wind sometimes swung the pipe sideways and pushed the prisoner off the board. He would fall into the concrete and drown, his body encased in the hardening concrete. One day, one of my friends did not return to the barracks after work. Where is Shmuel, I asked. In the concrete came the answer. Many years later, I found out that 12 prisoners had been buried in the concrete. Many prisoners died from the backbreaking work. Those who were older or had bad hearts or diabetes and received no medication died first. But then the young, healthy men began to die too. Much later, I read somewhere that the Germans called this Tod durch Arbeit, death by work. That was obviously the plan, for new prisoners could always be brought in. One morning, I woke up when the whistle blew and saw that my friend who slept next to me was not moving. I tried to shake him. He was dead. The first thing I did was check his pockets to see if there was a piece of bread there. We used to try to keep some bread for the morning when the hunger was the hardest to bear. But it seemed he had eaten his the night before. I carried out his body. He did not weigh much. With the help of another prisoner, I carried more dead bodies in this camp than I could count. As if hunger and unbearable work conditions were not enough of a punishment, we became infested with lice. There was a total absence of washing facilities in the camp. In summer, we at least had water taps outside. In winter, they were frozen. Thousands of these six-legged bugs were on each one of us hiding in the seams of our clothing and drinking our blood. We scratched incessantly. These lice also brought spotted typhus fever, a microbial disease transmitted through their feces. I became ill with this typhus, had a very high fever, and lost consciousness for several days. Many people died while unconscious, with a high fever caused by this illness. I woke up in the hospital barracks after several days. My father came to see me, and he later told me that I had whispered to him, I'm so hungry, I want an apple. Where do you find an apple in Dachau? I must have been delirious to say that. But in the evening, my father went to the window that was at the back of the camp kitchen when even going close to the kitchen was a dangerous thing for him to do. Luckily, there was a woman working there who knew me. She was an older student who attended my school before the war. My father told her what I had said, and she gave him three little green apples. He brought me the three apples, refusing to take even one for himself. I ate all three. They were the tastiest apples I have ever eaten. After recovering from my bout of spotted typhus, I was still very weak. And Dr. Benjamin Zacharin, who had been in the Kovno ghetto, offered me the chance to work in the Krankenstube, the hospital barracks, where he was in charge. A life-saving gesture. There, I cleaned helped the sick, and did everything else that needed doing. Dr. Zakharin had been a surgeon in the Jewish hospital before the war and was the head of the health department of the ghetto hospital. My mother had worked for him as a surgical nurse. My uncle Gedalia had been the administrator of the ghetto hospital, and my father also worked there for a time. He knew our whole family well. I believe that sometimes Dr. Zakharin had the responsibility of deciding when to send a sick prisoner who was not likely to work again to another Kaufering subcamp that some refer to as the Schonungslager, the so-called protection camp. But the Kaufering 4 subcamp was a place where people mostly died of hunger. Once he told me that he thought my father should be sent there due to his badly swollen legs. I told him that if my father was sent away, I would go with him. Dr. Zakharin thought about it and relented. After the war, my mother told me that she and Zakharin had promised each other that she would look after his wife if they ended up in the same camp and that he, in turn, would look after me and my father. I was aware that my mother and Zacharin had a romantic yet platonic relationship in the ghetto. After Dacha was liberated, Dr. Zacharin returned to Lithuania, contrary to the advice of my uncle Gedalia. He felt that he could function well in the Russian language under communism, and he thought that he would regain his previous position as surgeon which he did initially. Then other prisoners from Dachau returned to Kaunas, and accusations were raised that Zacharin had sent some of them to the Shonungslager. He was jailed by the Soviets for being a collaborator, and he died in prison, a very sad ending after surviving Dachau. I remember him fondly. One day, we observed a car with a huge red cross on its side, parked outside the camp gates. Two men in suits were standing nearby and talking in to the commandant. Later, we were given a small card with the symbol of the red cross on it, and we were told to write our full name on the card and sign it. The texts, stated that we confirmed having received a food parcel from the Red Cross. Some of us were of the opinion that we should not sign the card until we received the parcel, while others said that we might get a beating for refusing to sign. We all signed. The next day, we received a small carton that had been opened and was partially empty. Inside were half kilogram of sugar, a small tin of condensed milk, a tin of sardines, and one packet of cigarettes. It was obvious that the carton had originally contained more stuff. Nonetheless, we ate the sardines with delight, and I exchanged my cigarettes for more sardines. We licked the sugar and could not stop putting some of it in the coffee in the morning, which made us delirious with pleasure. Dr. Zakharin advised me to put some of the sugar I received from the Red Cross on a wound I had showed him on my right leg, close to the ankle, and not to bandage it. I had been having a problem with a wound for months, I had gone to the hospital barracks before, even started working there, and asked if I could put Vaseline on it and have it bandaged. But nothing helped. The wound would not heal. It had been getting larger and was now three inches long. The sugar soaked up the ooze and hardened over the wound. I added more sugar whenever I saw moisture coming to the surface. About three weeks later, the hardened coating over the wound peeled off and clean new skin was revealed. Cured by sugar, I thank Dr. Zakharin and he told me that long ago when he had studied medicine in Russia, he had been taught a folk medicine class on curing wounds using honey. So he thought perhaps sugar would have the same effect. Sugar is an antiseptic. No microbes can survive in sugar, apparently. I still have a mark on my leg on that spot. We were all disgusted with the Red Cross for not coming into the camp to observe our living conditions and our state of hunger. We were also very upset that they allowed themselves to be hoodwinked by the Nazis, allowing them to steal whatever else had been in the parcels. Probably chocolate. My unhappiness with the Red Cross Society never subsided. I have never contributed one cent to them. (laughs) I know that they do good work in the world, and it's silly to carry a grudge for so long, especially since the Red Cross admitted after the war that they let down the concentration camp prisoners. Still, I know that the Red Cross did an excellent job for the Allied prisoners of war transmitting parcels and mail from home and making sure they were received. But for the Jews in the camps? After the terrible hard winter of 1944-45, our prisoner population had been reduced considerably. Many simply died of hunger, some of wounds that would not heal. Some were so exhausted, their feet swollen from malnutrition, that they could no longer work they were selected by a visiting SS doctor and were shipped off either to Auschwitz up until November 1944 or to the Schonungslager, where they were left to die with minimal food rations even compared to our rations in the working camp. My half-uncle, Zalman Knebel, died there. His son, my cousin Hone Knebel, survived in our camp. It was dangerous to be admitted to the hospital barracks, the Krankenstube, since the selection could come at any time. One day my father came to the hospital exhausted, his legs swollen from hunger again. This time Dr. Zacharin admitted him. The very next day, an SS doctor came to inspect the patients. All the patients had to go outside and stand in line, naked, to be reviewed by the assessed doctor. A truck was idling nearby, ready to receive the patients selected for removal. As staff, I was standing outside watching how the doctor selected people with swollen legs to go to the truck. I ran around the corner to see where my father was. He was standing in line to be examined. I went into the latrine nearby and motioned to him to come to me. He did not want to lose his place in the queue. So he waved to me to wait until after he passed the selection. I waved more urgently and I could tell he was irritated. But a prisoner behind him said, "Your son is calling you. Go see what he wants." So he came to me, cross that I had made him leave the line. I pulled him into the latrine and explained that people like him with swollen legs were being taken away. I kept him in the latrine until the selection was over and the doctor and the truck left. I saved his life yet again.